Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Thanks to you at home for joining us this hour. I am Jonathan Capehart, in for Alex tonight. Today, the 2024 political calendar got a little more complicated. The judge in former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago classified documents case has set a trial date, May 20th, 2024. The government expects that trial to last somewhere in the range of 21 to 60 days. And it will come just a few months after Trump's New York hush money trial starts in March. We don't know how long that case will last. But both of those criminal cases against the former president come smack dab in the middle of the 2024 political calendar. Both are after the bulk of the Republican primaries, but before the general election. And if that calendar seems full now, give it a couple of weeks. We are all on indictment watch, waiting for a charging decision from special counsel Jack Smith in his investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And Jack Smith only has a week left if he wants to indict Trump in that case before Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis comes to a charging decision in her investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. D.A. Willis has indicated that she expects to announce that charging decision as soon as a week from Monday. So the clock is ticking. Now, I know the entire country is watching every move Jack Smith, Jack Smith makes right now. We even got full press coverage of how he bought a sandwich at Subway this week. And that level of public interest makes sense. But we should not be sleeping on Fonnie Willis. Yesterday, Trump filed yet another motion to try to disqualify D.A. Willis from his case entirely. We're going to get some expert help figuring out how serious that is in a second. But even just Trump trying to disqualify D.A. Willis this late in the game shows how afraid he is of her potential prosecution of him. We also got reporting out of the Guardian newspaper today showing how wide-ranging and serious the charges D.A. Willis is planning to bring against Trump, uh, how serious they could be. The Guardian's Hugo Lowell reports that Willis has developed evidence to charge a sprawling racketeering or RICO indictment next month. Now, I should note that NBC News has not independently confirmed that reporting, but we do know that D.A. Willis really likes bringing RICO cases. Earlier this year, she pointed out to The Washington Post that she had brought more RICO indictments in her first 20 months in office than the Fulton County office had brought in the past 10 years. And I know when you hear racketeering or RICO, You probably think of gangs or the mafia, but RICO cases are a lot broader than that. A criminal enterprise can be really any enterprise committing crimes. For example, back in 2014, Fulton County brought a RICO case against a group of 35 public school teachers and principals in a cheating scandal. All but one of those educators either 
pleaded guilty or were found guilty of changing students' answers on standardized tests for financial gain. The lead prosecutor in that case was Fonnie Willis. Oh, and the trial lasted eight whole months. Lots to talk about. Joining us now, Christy Greenberg, former federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, and Charles Coleman Jr., a former prosecutor in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. Thank you both very much for coming to Wagner tonight. So, Charles, let me start with you. What do you make of the new trial date for the Mar-a-Lago case set by Judge Aileen Cannon, May 20th, 2024? Am I right in thinking that both sides got what they wanted here? Yes and no. I would say that Jack Smith's office knew that December was pushing it in terms of a trial date. And so I don't necessarily know that they expected to get the December 11th date that they originally asked for, but they wanted something closer to it. So it's sort of you shoot for the moon and hopefully you come back with a couple of stars. In a case like this, however, if I'm Donald Trump's attorneys, I'm walking away feeling really, really good about having a May 20, 2024 trial date. And the reason why is this. When you're talking about Donald Trump's legal strategy, he does not have a plethora of options right now. But when you're talking about May of 2024, it's very possible that that will get delayed further because there are going to be a ton of different motions throughout the course of discovery that would naturally push a a trial further. And as attorneys, we sort of know that we expect that to be the case throughout the course of a case like this. Not just that, but when you're talking about May of 2024, the primary season is all but done at that point. Mm -hmm. So if Donald Trump is the nominee, at that point, it gives new life to this argument about election tampering or election interference, potentially, because right now it's far too early for a judge to consider that. All right. Christy, to throw yet another wrinkle in here, maybe this is a a delay tactic. But um, today on Fox, uh, Trump's newest attorney, John Laro, um, said the first thing he would ask for in Trump's case is um, cameras in the courtroom. Now, tell the audience, are cameras allowed in the courtroom in federal trials? So they can be. Uh, They can be. If there is an order from the judge allowing them, they can be, particularly in high-profile cases that are of intense public interest, which this is. So I have to say, I think this is a great thing. I think it's great for transparency. I think it's great for the American public to see what is going on in that courtroom. How likely is it, though, that a judge will grant that? Well, federal judge in this kind of a case, uh, it's going to be tough because this is all involving classified materials. Right. And so what can be made available to the jury is maybe different than what may be available to the public. And so there's going to have to be if anything is public in, you know, in camera, there's going to be a lot of discussion about what that would look like and what would be appropriate. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, that's a really important point, because when you're talking strategically about Donald Trump's defense team, one of the things that has come up with respect to the conversation around SEPA, which is the Classified Information Protection mm-hmm. Act, is this notion of gray mail. And gray mail is a strategy that has been used to basically put the pressure on the prosecutor because you basically want everything exposed when you're dealing with classified information and get them to make the decision as to what it is that they put out and how much of it they put out. Now you're putting in front of Jack Smith a new factor to navigate with respect to what is it with these cameras out that you're going to put out in front Mm. of the public and how much of that are you willing to put on the line from a national security standpoint in terms of proving your case. So this is a very key strategy, not to mention that Donald Trump, of course, is the key of narrative. He's the king of narrative. And this is also an opportunity for him to sort of play the the victim and not necessarily be prosecuted, but claim he's being persecuted. 
Right. And, and, and Christy, you know, May 2024 for the, the January 6th uh, trial in the classified documents case. How is that going to impact the trial date that we still don't know yet, assuming an indictment's coming down from Fulton County um, for the Fonnie Willis case? Well, I think it, to the extent we have two indictments that we're potentially looking at, <laughs> right. one from Jack Smith and one from Fonnie Willis, I think the Jack Smith January 6th indictment could come sooner. Uh, t- the trial yeah. could come sooner uh, for that case because there are no, at least that we know of, we haven't seen the indictment, there are no classified materials to worry about here. And the D.C. judges are familiar with January 6th cases. They've seen a lot of them. So we could get a trial date much sooner than May uh, 2024 in that case. With Fonnie Willis, you know, it's hard to say. She's bringing apparently a sprawling RICO conspiracy with at least a dozen individuals who have received target letters. So depending on how big of a case she's bringing, hard to say exactly where her state trial would fit in there. Is it unreasonable to think that um, D.A. Willis and the special counsel are talking to each other and maybe coordinating simply because there are two investigations while one is Georgia and one is sort of national, they do overlap. Possible, but not likely. I think that ultimately it is not unreasonable to suspect that Fonnie Willis is proceeding on a, a course that basically lays out what she wants to do as a state prosecutor in Georgia, Fulton County, right there. And without any regard for what's going on with Jack Smith. And I also think that that's why the ruling from Judge Cannon becomes so critical, because his attorneys are going to try as best they can in every other jurisdiction to use that as a benchmark. Even if he's indicted around January 6th, they're still going to try to use that that March 20th date as a benchmark for everything else as much as they can. With Fonnie Willis, it becomes a little easier because you're talking about a state case versus a federal case. Same thing with Alvin Bragg. You're talking about, look— If I'm his defense attorneys, I'm saying, let's have everything track his federal case. Right now, the only thing on the docket for the federal case is the May 20th date. Mm -hmm. If that changes with respect to a January 6th indictment and that comes earlier, now you have a different ballgame. But ultimately, they're going to use that as the benchmark for everything else that's on the table and everything else that can get on the table. Christy, uh, uh, um, Jack Smith's grand jury heard from a return witness. Uh, former Trump aide Will Russell, NBC News has learned today that he was questioned, um, trying to, the questions were trying to glean from him sort of state of mind. Um, what does that tell you that Jack Smith is talking to this Trump aide so late, seemingly so late in this process? So the public reporting is that he's actually been in the grand jury, right. I think, twice before. So the fact that they're talking to him a third time, it seems like they're trying to tie up some loose ends here before they bring their indictment. Again, they they sent the target letter to Donald Trump. They have their ducks in a row here. They have their prosecution memo. They have their draft indictment. And they're just trying to pull together some last minute things before they ask a grand jury to vote. And uh, real quickly, does Trump's latest attempt to get D.A. Willis disqualified have any chance of succeeding? You're you're shaking your head. No, absolutely not. It's untimely. He has not been charged by a grand jury. He can bring any kind of emotion about a conflict of interest or any concerns about the grand jury procedures after he has been indicted in a pretrial motion. It's completely premature. These are tactics to try and scare her. But Fannie Willis doesn't scare easily. She's been fearless throughout this entire two-year investigation, and she has persisted despite so many attempts from 
from the Republicans in Georgia, as well as Donald Trump to oust her. So I, I think she will continue to persist and, and do the work that she's been doing. You Ten seconds, because I, I see you itching to say something. I agree with Christy. That's really, but it's really important to understand that this is also a pattern with Donald Trump. Fonnie Willis is the duly elected district attorney in Fulton County in Georgia. What Donald Trump is seeking to do is invalidate her authority and invalidate the decision of those voters Mm -hmm. in Fulton County, which is consistent with what he tried to do with the voters who made the decision by electing Joe Biden the president. So this is part of the course for him, but it's not going to work as it didn't before. And we're going to leave it there. Christy Greenberg and Charles Coleman Jr., thank you both very much for your time tonight. We have much more to come tonight. Vice President Kamala Harris goes to Florida after the state decided to teach children that slavery was sometimes beneficial to enslaved people. Plus, Republicans in Alabama got a pretty clear directive from the Supreme Court to redraw their congressional maps to make them fairer to black voters. Guess what they did instead? That's next. What kind of fun is waiting for you at Kings Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. Kings Island is now open weekends. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Today in Alabama, state Republicans defied the Supreme Court of the United States and voted against redrawing congressional maps that would accurately represent black voters. Right now in Alabama, only one of the seven congressional districts is majority black, even though more than a quarter of Alabama's population is African-American. Last month, the Supreme Court agreed with a lower court ruling from at least two Trump appointees that found that Alabama's map violated the Voting Rights Act by denying minority voters an equal opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. The decision called on the Alabama legislature to draw an additional district, making black voters the majority of the the voting age population or, quote, something quite close to it. So Alabama Republicans had to go back to the drawing board. And today... After long sessions of negotiations and huddling over dueling maps represented by Republicans in both chambers, or presented by Republicans in both chambers, legislators adopted their final proposal, a map that still doesn't do what the Supreme Court said. You can see it right here. First, it drops the percentage of black voters in the only majority black district from 55% to nearly 51%. And it adds a new district where black voters will only make up about 40% of the voting age population. 
That's neither the majority nor something quite close to it. The governor of Alabama just signed that map into law, leaving black voters in Alabama back at square one. Joining us now, Tona Boyd, associate director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund, one of the groups that brought the Alabama case to the Supreme Court on behalf of the plaintiffs. Tona, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. So as a litigant for the case, what's your initial reaction to Republicans in Alabama ignoring the Supreme Court ruling? Listen, Jonathan, what the Alabama legislature has done is appalling. It's lawless and it's undemocratic. As you just stated, both the district court and the United States Supreme Court were clear about what Alabama must do, and that's create a second district where black voters have the opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice. And instead, what Alabama did is appalling. But you know know, what? It is not. It's not new. Uh, We've seen this from Alabama before. We've seen this movie before. I mean, recall back to the 60s when yet again, Alabama defied a court order designed to fully enfranchise and give blacks the opportunities that they deserved. I mean, this this was a infamous moment mm-hmm. in which George Wallace stood and tried to block students from integrating the University of Alabama and did that in defiance of a court order. So mm-hmm. Alabama has done this before, but they didn't succeed then and they won't succeed now. So then the, the new map uh, you know, is likely to be rejected by the district court that struck down Alabama's first map. So if that happened, what, what happens next? I think that's right. You know, this. So first of all, although Alabama is acting as though they're above the law, they are not. This map is going to go back to the same district court that rejected their discriminatory map before. That court will then evaluate that and we will be there to object to that map. Uh, and then the court will likely have the option to appoint a special master who will then come up with a map that comports with the court's order. So Alabama will not have uh, this is not the last word or the last step in this journey. You know, what, what is LDF ready to do to block Republicans from denying black voters in Alabama a chance at equal representation? Listen, we are going to continue to fight as we have for the past two years to ensure that black Alabamians have the representation that they deserve and that they have a map that is fair. So we are we are already mobilized to object to the map that has been put forth thus far. We will continue to fight in court. But I've got to say, we, we can't only fight this battle on one front. We've also got to fight to restore, to fully restore and strengthen the Voting Rights Act so that these type of antics that the Alabama legislature has gotten up to don't continue to persist. Mm -hmm. So how could this new map reverberate across the country, especially with other states in the South confronting similar voting rights challenges? 
You know, I think the message is going to be clear, uh, Jonathan. We're going to continue to fight because this map cannot and should not stand. Both the district court and the Supreme Court were clear. And so we're going to continue to fight. And that's here in Alabama and elsewhere, where folks are continuing to try to subvert the will of black voters. You know, Tona, as I was reading the story about what is happening in Alabama and Alabama (laughs) defying a Supreme Court ruling— I went back to the Supreme Court ruling in Brown v. Board of Education. Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't the Supreme Court have to do another ruling where they put in there that they had to desegregate the schools, quote, with all deliberate speed? Do I have my history right? You do. You do, Jonathan. And I have to say, it couldn't be more important in this case that we act quickly to ensure that Alabamians have the fair representation that they deserve. Because you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And once an unfair map is in place and allows to persist, the harm is irreparable. We already saw that with the 2022 election, when Alabamians were forced to vote under an unfair map. We cannot and will not let that happen again. We have to act, as the court has said before, with all deliberate speed. With all deliberate speed, Tona Boyd, Associate Director, Counsel of the Legal Defense Fund. Thank you for making the time tonight. Thanks for having me. Still more to come tonight. President Biden takes a stand against the potentially destructive side of artificial intelligence. Plus, Vice President Kamala Harris responds to the outrage in Florida. New black history standards that teach kids that slavery sometimes benefited enslaved people. More on that next. How is it that anyone could suggest that in the midst of these atrocities, that there was any benefit to being subjected to this level of dehumanization? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Adults know what slavery really involved. It involved rape. It involved torture. It involved taking a baby from their mother. How is it that anyone could suggest that in the midst of these atrocities, that there was any benefit to being subjected to this level of dehumanization? 
That was Kamala Harris, the country's first black vice president in Jacksonville, Florida today, saying something that should not be up for debate. The vice president's speech comes as Florida faces backlash over new standards for teaching black history in public schools. Those standards require middle schoolers to learn that enslaved people, quote, developed skills that personally benefited them. The state Department of Education has responded to criticism with a statement that reads in part, the intent of this particular benchmark clarification is to show that some slaves developed highly specialized trades from which they benefited. That statement lists 16 people who allegedly benefited from their enslavement, but at least six of those people were never enslaved. It specifically names Ned Cobb. And while the Department of Education is not specific about which Ned Cobb they have listed, history books across the country teach about a Ned Cobb who was born in Alabama in 1885, the son of an enslaved man. The skill he learned was farming. And he used that skill to escape the financial binds of sharecropping, if you can call that a personal benefit. Joining us now, Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and Into America podcast host Tremaine. Thank you for making time for us tonight. Thanks so much, Jonathan. So today we heard the country's first black vice president come out and say slavery is wrong. What do you make of the necessity of that statement in the year 2023. John, the perhaps uh, the saddest part is that it actually has to be stated in 2023. Whether you're talking about 1923 or 2023, um, there has been this battle over this narrative that slavery simply wasn't that bad, right? That black people have been complaining and there was a war fought over it and it wasn't that bad. There were some good slave owners, that there was an acceptable degree of rape, an acceptable degree of human trafficking, and we call it slavery, and we, we've seen these pictures and read these stories about this, the genteel South and the plantation and, and merry Negroes playing their violins. But in fact, these were forced labor camps where mm-hmm. people were systematically uh, raped, separated from their children. And, but the fact of the matter is that that narrative still pervades. And there's a huge faction of this country that does not want to uh, not just accept the history of this country, because accepting the history means you have to ex- accept and respect the experiences that black people have experienced in this country, but also they have to take a look in the mirror and and see the actual, the horrors and violence heaped upon black people by white society. Right. And that's really hard for a lot of folks. You know, Tremaine, we Googled the names that Florida's Department of Education holds up as examples of people who benefited from slavery. One of them seems to refer to George Washington's sister. Six of them were never enslaved. What do you make of that? Well, really, it doesn't matter who these people are. They're, they're, they're stand-ins. And I think one telling moment was uh, there was a spokesman for uh, Governor Ron DeSantis who, who tweeted in response to VP Harris's uh, speech who said her mother is, is Indian. Uh, her father is of Jamaican descent, who they say admitted that they also descend from a slave owner. And they pointed to that to say she, she wasn't descended from slaves, the complete opposite, as if millions of people in this country have not been uh, are, are not descendants of people who were inseminated through rape by white slave masters, right? And so it doesn't matter. The, the facts don't matter. The names don't matter. The fact is that they want to be able to use folks as, as a target to dehumanize and illegitimize the experience of black people in this country. And at least the most cynical view on this is that um, they're doing this purely for political gain. 
because they know there's a huge segment of, of voters in this country who are cheering this stuff on because that means they look at the entitlements, they look at the welfare state, and they look at black folks, they look at affirmative action, they look at uh, folks having to feel, quote unquote, guilty about um, the role that their ancestors played in this country. And so, again, the facts really don't matter. But isn't that, um, you know, perfect in this broad uh, culture war that folks are in about the truth, that they'll use uh, lies and misinformation to mm -hmm. kind of propel their side? It fits perfectly. Yeah. And Jermaine, one more question for you. Earlier this year, you went to Florida and spoke to people who are trying to educate students on black history outside of the classroom. What are they saying about the changes to Florida's curriculum? You know, one thing that I, that I kind of expected, but to hear it from generations of families who say they feel actually attacked. Folks, especially from the South, who've grown up hearing the stories about so much of the violence and all of the barriers set up between black people um, who descended from enslaved people to finally get a taste of freedom and try to build communities and educate uh, their, their children, um, to have those stories wiped away, um, it, it felt personal to a lot of people. And so they say, like, you know, as so many of us have heard time and again, that no one is going to save us but us. And so for the, the group of folks that led by uh, Professor Marvin Dunn, who are going through these teach the truth tours, taking people actually in the footsteps of history so that history will never be lost, John. Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the Into America podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. When we come back, the dangerous and sometimes deadly effects of the heat waves parked over much of America and why simply cranking up the AC is not the answer. But first, part of the reason Hollywood is striking right now is a reckoning over artificial intelligence. We'll talk about the threat it may be posing to all of us and what the Biden administration is doing about it. Next. We'll see more technology change in the next 10 years or even in the next few years than we've seen in the last 50 years. Artificial intelligence is going to transform the lives of people around the world. But we must be clear-eyed and vigilant about the threats emerging of emerging technologies that can pose, don't have to, but can pose to our democracy and our values. That was President Biden today after meeting with the leaders of major tech companies about the future of artificial intelligence, or AI. The president was able to get major tech companies like Amazon, Google, Meta, and Microsoft to agree to a new set of voluntary guidelines for how to safely and ethically use the emerging new technology. Those guidelines include things like testing AI products for security risks and using watermarks to help people identify AI-generated images and videos online. But the new agreement comes as concerns over the potential effects of AI are rising. Striking actors and writers have demanded studios agree not to displace workers in the entertainment industry using artificial intelligence. And some technology experts worry AI could one day pose an existential threat to humanity itself. Joining me now, Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat of California and the ranking member of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Cyber Innovative Technologies and information systems. Congressman Khanna, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. So your reaction to the voluntary agreement the president got today with the tech companies, uh, and, and tell me whether you think Congress needs to follow up with binding rules and regulations for AI. 
Well, I give the president credit for moving decisively and quickly and getting some important pledges. It's important that tech companies will have watermarks so that if you have a deep fake of the president himself or uh, or of you, Jonathan, saying things that are false, people will be able to distinguish that. It's important that they're going to do testing. But the reality is this is not enough. Uh, who are they reporting to? There's no agency. There's no enforcement. Uh, and we really need to create, like the FDA, an agency that is going to oversee AI with standards. And we can get into what else needs to be done. Uh, but the main thing is there has to be some accountability or enforcement. Let me play um, something that SAG President Fran Drescher said on this topic. Watch. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. This is a moment of history. That is a moment of truth. If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in trouble. We are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines. And to that point, Congressman Khanna, background actors have described how their likenesses can be artificially inserted into the background of a TV or, or film scene. That means actors who once got paid to work as extras no longer would. What kind of protections should be in place in the labor market to avoid destroying people's livelihoods? Well, my sympathies on this issue are with the writers and actors for three reasons. First, we need to compensate writers for their actual data. If you're taking, if you're writing a script or you're writing a play and then you're throwing that into an AI machine and it's turning something else out, it's almost a form of plagiarism. And that mm. original data needs to be compensated. Second, if you start replacing writers with AI, I, they're not going to produce Shakespeare or Toni Morrison. My concern is you're going to lower the standard of entertainment and the American people may just get accustomed to that. So we need to make sure that writers and humans actually, at the end of the day, are producing the product. And then that we have to figure out how they're going to be compensated uh, in a way of AI and where the checks are not to be replaced. So I think the writers are absolutely in the right here. And the studios need to work with them to give them a seat at the table. You know, the Biden administration said today that companies must ensure that innovation doesn't come at the expense of Americans' rights and safety. How worried are you about the potential for this technology to, to spread disinformation or disrupt civil discourse in a way that makes us less safe? It's an issue. And here's the biggest issue that hasn't been addressed. The AI is only as good as the data you put into it. And we all know that the Internet is filled with conspiracy theories. So if you're putting in bad data and now you're amplifying it and building uh, uh, solutions off of that, then that is going to just make misinformation that much more dangerous. Now, there are a lot of positive uses of AI. You can customize medicine. You can customize, edu uh, customize education. You can bring manufacturing back. It's not all doom and gloom. But we need strong standards. The president is doing his part. He has really acted well. Congress needs to do our part. Tonight, after this show, MSNBC is airing a documentary about the life of Robert Oppenheimer, who famously struggled with the technological innovation he unleashed on the world. And similarly, the man known as the godfather of AI has said this technology poses an existential threat to humanity. Congressman, do we as a society have a duty to listen to those kinds of warnings? 
We should take them seriously. There's a difference, though, between the machine learning models we have, which can autocomplete tasks, and artificial general intelligence. And we're still years away from artificial general intelligence. So I think it's important that we not scare people, but it's important we also have the guidelines so that we can use AI for the good, for making products more abundant, for customizing things, and avoid the danger of misinformation, of uh, hurting writers, of out having killer robots. We can do this. We have to have the, the standards. And I think look at the FDA as a model, create an agency like that for AI. All right, Congressman Ro Khanna of California, we have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. We have one more story for you tonight. It may be summer, but it is not normal that in parts of the country right now, it can be dangerous just to go outside. What's happening and what we can do next. Large swaths of the country continue to swelter amid record-breaking heat this summer, including in Arizona, where temperatures in Phoenix have peaked at or above 110 degrees Fahrenheit for the entire month of July. Doctors in the state say health risks are also on the rise, including cases of contact burns, some as severe as second or third degree burns. The Washington Post reports that one toddler named Mason accidentally slipped through a pet door, stepped onto a concrete patio and was, quote, screaming within seconds. Mason suffered second degree burns on the soles of his feet. And when his parents took him to an area hospital, they, quote, met another toddler with burned feet. Over in Texas, construction workers are protesting after Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed a law in June that removed mandates for water breaks for outdoor workers, just as the heat wave began to punish the state. Researchers say human-driven climate change makes extreme heat like this at least five times more likely. And this month, July 2023, is on course to become the world's hottest month in hundreds, if not thousands, of years, according to one NASA scientist. Also, there's this. Heat is the number one weather-related cause of death in the United States. Number one. It often kills more people than hurricanes, floods, and tornadoes combined. And as the new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, points out, heat is a silent, overlooked danger. Quote, when heat comes, it's invisible. It doesn't bend tree branches or blow hair across your face to let you know it's arrived. The ground doesn't shake. It just surrounds you and works on you in ways that you can't anticipate or control. Joining us now is the author of that prescient book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Jeff Goodell. Jeff, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So as you know, heat domes happen when the atmosphere traps hot ocean air over an area like a lid on a pot. You live in Texas, where heat is particularly dangerous for a number of reasons, including the power grid. Can you explain to everyone why the solution cannot simply be crank up the AC? Uh, you know, we all love a, a techno fix, right? We all would like it to be that simple that we just, you know, when it gets hot, you just turn on the AC. Um, but in fact, um, AC is not the solution to this. You know, first of all, there are billions of people on this planet who don't have AC and will never have AC. Uh, while I was reporting this book, I spent a lot of time with people 
uh, in poor communities who maybe did have AC but couldn't afford to run it or could maybe afford to run it for an hour. And we're trying to decide whether they should uh, run the AC or have enough money to buy dinner. And so it's a huge burden. More importantly, you know, we're not going to air condition the oceans. You know, we're not going to air condition the wheat fields where our food is grown. We're not going to air condition the corn fields. And, and, and finally, the, the, you know, the, the other really important point is that, you know, in Texas here where I live, we had a blackout a couple of years ago where I was without power for five days. If something like that happened during one of these extreme heat events, all of a sudden the air conditioning would stop and we would have, um, you know, a massive, it would be a massive consequences. We'd have what one uh, uh, infrastructure expert I talked to called a heat Katrina, referring to mm. uh, Hurricane Katrina. You know, it's clear that local, state and federal aid programs need to do more to mitigate heat related risks. What are some what are some things that can be done in the short term? Well, I mean, there's a whole range of things. I mean, you can start with simple things. You know, cities are much hotter than the rural regions around them. So a lot of the efforts are focused on how to cool cities off. Um, you know, some of the simplest things are, you know, more uh, planting of street trees so that you have more shade, more green spaces for people to get to, opening of cooling centers so that people who don't have air conditioning have cool spaces uh, to go to. Um, you have cities that are doing larger infrastructure projects like, you know, Athens, Greece is rebuilding a Roman aqueduct in order to bring more water into the center of this of the city to uh, allow more green space and more planting, um, democratizing air conditioning so that people could, so that it's cheaper and people aren't worried about having their power turned off. I mean, heat deaths are um, avoidable. We can change how we message about heat, how we talk about it. We all know hurricanes and things have ratings. We don't do that for, for heat waves. And we in the media can get a lot better at it because we often talk about heat waves and show pictures of kids you know, playing in sprinklers or um, hanging out at the beach. And we don't really communicate the, the scale and urgency of the mm -hmm. threat. Well, speaking of the scale and urgency of the threat, I mean, the heat's not exclusive to the United States. Europe, Asia, the Middle East, North Africa are all experiencing massive heat waves this summer. What type of, type of ripple effect does this have? Do, do the heat waves happening in Asia and here in the United States, do they have impacts on each other or are these all separate heat domes acting independently of each other? Well, they're all separate, but they're all a consequence of our um, the changes that are happening in our atmosphere. As we add more and more CO2 to the atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels, it is heating up our atmosphere, which is changing the kind of dynamics. You know, the Arctic is heating four times faster than the rest of the planet, which is changing where the jet stream goes. We, the jet stream kind of gets wiggly and it creates these heat domes where the heat is, these high pressure zones are, are kind of locked in. So they're separate, but they're all a consequence of this new climate we're creating by um, loading it up with mm -hmm. CO2. So, Mr. Goodell, experts say this is just the beginning. This may actually be one of the cooler summers of our lifetimes. Do the scientists and the experts you talk to still think there is time to course correct? 
Yes, there's plenty of, there's a lot of time to course correct. Um, you know, this is not a, are we doomed or are we not question? You know, everything that we do to reduce CO2 emissions right now helps to lower the temperature of the planet in the long run and helps to reduce the impacts. But I think what we're seeing now is a signal that this is happening now, it's happening fast, this is an emergency, this global warming climate change is not something that's happening far off in the distance to people that are living in the future or in some other place, it's happening to us. We need to get serious about it. And this is what this summer is about, mm -hmm. I think. Jeff Goodell, whose new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, is out now. Jeff, thank you for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. That does it for the show tonight. I'm Jonathan Capehart in for Alex Wagner. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 